0: Welcome to Lincoln Log, where we speak with leading historians and other officials about their stories, research, and wisdom. Expand your knowledge and indulge your curiosity here on Lincoln Log. This podcast is produced by the Abraham Lincoln Association, aiding and promoting Abraham Lincoln's life and legacy. Founded in 1908, the ALA remains the nation's oldest and largest Lincoln organization. Learn more at abrahamlincolnassociation.org. Greetings. I am your host, Joshua Claiborne, and I am pleased to welcome Dan McLaughlin to our Lincoln Log podcast. Dan is a senior writer at National Review Online. He was formerly an attorney practicing securities and commercial litigation in New York City, a contributing editor of Red State, columnist at The Federalist and The New Ledger, a baseball blogger at baseballcrank.com, BostonSportsGuy.com and Providence Journal Online, as well as a contributor to the Command Post. His writings on politics, baseball, and law have appeared in numerous other newspapers, magazines, websites, and legal journals. Dan, thank you for joining the podcast. Great to be here. Uh, you recently authored a piece in National Review titled, The Confederate Roots of the Administrative State. Of course, we all have to agree that the administrative state has grown exponentially Um, in America over the past century, much of it without roots in our Constitution. And you argue that this bureaucratic, unelected, managerial government had its birthplace in the Confederate states of America, and then this system was ultimately imported into the theory and practice of the federal government by Woodrow Wilson. I want to give you a chance to sort of elaborate on your column and maybe some of the the other, potentially even specific examples of how Wilson advanced the Confederate government philosophy. Yeah, so, uh,
1: I mean you know I think there's there's a a bit of an uneven history to the administrative state in the United States, particularly in the federal government, uh, obviously, this is focusing more on the the national than the state governments um, but uh you know prior to eighteen sixty one the administrative state in the United States was very small um, the federal government had only about i think uh, like about around forty five hundred employees other than outside of you know the military and the post office and even the military was you know about ten thousand people um and a few thousand uh others in the in the post post office so um you know the the number of bureaucrats that you had uh was quite small uh the justice department didn't exist for example uh the attorney general did not oversee um really law enforcement in the United States, Attorney General was was principally there to advise the president. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, you had, um, you know, the, the, the constitutional structure that we had for that period, uh, and that's still at least written down, um, was one of very strict separation of powers uh, where the president had essentially total control over the executive branch. Um, There was, you know, extensive political control and that that expanded under Andrew Jackson, uh, the so-called spoils system, uh, in which, you know, huge numbers of the uh, appointees to the federal government were uh, political. They they, they could be removed by the president. and that was all, you know, that was all stuff that went back to not only to, uh, to Madison and the, and the Constitution, but to John Adams mm-hmm. uh, and the Massachusetts Constitution, to Montesquieu. Um, and, you know, we've had three moments of national constitution writing in America. Um, and, and I'm leaving aside, you know, the Vermont and Texas constitutions, which I think were, were single, even when they were independent republics, they were sort of expected. Uh, not necessarily to be long-term national projects, right? Right. So you have the Articles of Confederation in in 1777. You have the, uh, you know, the Great Convention of Philadelphia in 1787. And then in the spring of 1861 in in Montgomery, Alabama, you have the writing of the Confederate Constitution. Um, And it's interesting because if you sit down and read the Confederate Constitution, some of it, of course, is i mean they they literally started with uh the u s Constitution as their model uh all of the confederacy's laws essentially were well let's just take whatever you know we already know and is familiar mm-hmm. and then adapt it based on specific things we want to do and so some of what was changed, obviously was to give to strengthen the protections of slavery uh in ex- very explicit ways um some of what was changed. Uh, by the committee, which was essentially dominated by a handful of Georgians. Um, some of what was changed by the committee was, you know, very civic grievances that the South had had about states' rights and, and tariffs uh, and things of that nature to, to, to offer some strengthening of states against uh, the national Confederate government. But the other set of revisions that were made, uh, are very interesting to study because what they really did was to reduce the separation of powers and at the same time reduce the president's control over the executive branch. So uh, the president is term limited, first of all. His term is extended to six years, but he's term limited. So Jefferson Davis uh, never had to think about reelection. Um, everything that he did, uh, essentially, he didn't have to face the voters again. Um, but that also meant that he was sort of in political terms, kind of a lame duck from the day he took office. Um, the, uh, one of the chief changes is that it made explicit what had always been implicit in American practice, which is that cabinet officers uh, and the diplomats could be removed at will by the president, but the rest of the civil service the executive branch uh, could only be removed for cause. This is a brand new thing, this is not in the US constitution. Um, There were also revisions to uh, allow Congress to permit cabinet secretaries to sit on the floor of the Confederate House uh, and essentially act as, you know, in the way that members of the British cabinet could. Uh, Robert Toombs, who was the Confederate Secretary of State, uh, I think was probably the moving force behind this. He was a great admirer of the British parliamentary system. Uh, They never ended up enacting that. There were a number of things in Confederate theory that never ended up in Confederate practice. For example, the Confederate Constitution authorizes a Supreme Court. They never got around to having one. Um, so some of that changed in practice. Uh, there's a line item veto. There are, uh, in fact, the Confederate legislature could not appropriate any funds except for itself, for its own operations and, and, and for uh, judgment, the judgment fund. Those are the only two things on which the Confederate Congress was permitted to appropriate funds that weren't requested by either the president or the heads of executive departments. So it gave much more presidential control of the budget. Um, And so what you have in in the theory of the Confederate government in its design um, is a strengthening of the executive at the expense of the legislature, but at the same time, a weakening of the president within the executive branch. and then what happens next is from theory to practice um and you know we we often hear in our histories about the expansion of government that happened in the union during the war right and 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 you know and 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 obviously lincoln and his government um did not always stick by the principles they believed in uh you know under the stresses of wartime as has been you know fairly uh, a common thing for wartime governments anywhere that that you know some of the small government free market things that Lincoln wanted to do didn 't exactly end up that way, but by and large, the expansion of government in the Union during the war was really dwarfed by the expansion of government federal government in the confederacy. We had a huge number of these boards and bureaus um, and, and part of this was uh again exigencies of wartime right the confederacy right. does not have the industrial base that the union has right it has a much smaller manpower base particularly because you know uh nearly 40 percent of the population is slaves uh and only at the very very end of the war do they even consider arming them and, and that probably was not a not a good idea for you know what the confederates were trying to accomplish anyway um so you have a much smaller you know a smaller population Uh, a much smaller manpower base, Um, and so the confederacy needs to take steps uh, to much more aggressively marshal its resources, and so you have this enormous growth of the administrative state. One of the things they do uh, over a year before the union does, they institute the draft, first military draft in American history, but it's different. The union's draft, um, I mean both drafts had certain features like uh, the ability to buy your way out with a substitute, um, but what the confederacy does because its draft is essentially going it's going to draft everybody right they They end up between volunteers and conscripts they end up with about seventy five percent of the white men of military age of the confederacy end up serving in the, in the military um, so it's this is enormous, enormous effort to get men under arms um, and there are occupational exemptions. And all of these, the war department bureaus, and there's like 57,000 employees just in the war department. Um, and the war department bureaus uh, essentially use this as leverage to control a huge amount of the economy. Um, because if you can dictate you know, where people can can and can't work, uh, you're essentially centrally planning your economy. And then on top of that, the the wartime industries, you know, in, in the Union, you've got the requisitioning, of, you have essentially military contractors, right, the military-industrial complex and uh, of, of, of a primitive sort, and even you have, you know, guys like Thaddeus Stevens, who's, uh, you know, steering war contracts to his own foundries and such, you know, all of the usual kind of shenanigans that you have in a democratic system, but, um, but in the Confederacy, you don't, you have very, very limited um, industries before the wartime, war-related industries before the war starts. And so the war department is essentially running munitions factories and, um, you know, they don't nationalize the railroads, but they nationalize essentially control the railroads. They do nationalize the telegraph. Um, They're nationalizing, you know, uh, factories to make uh, all sorts of weaponry. so there's a pervasive control and, uh, and, and, and all of this has to be done through bureaucracy.
0: And you believe um, this ultimately appealed to Woodrow Wilson that he started to incorporate that into his plans and designs and hopes for the federal government as well, then, is what you would say.
1: Yeah, I mean, you have to understand that Wilson, because a lot of this recedes after the war, right? The, the union dismantles a good deal of its own. Um, administrative structure. The Confederate government is, of course, uh, gone with the wind, so to speak. Um, and so Wilson, um, you know, and, and and there are there are in the interim between 1865 and Wilson's election in 1912, there are some steps taken towards uh, the growth of um, an administrative state. We have the, the the Interstate Commerce Commission. We have the civil service reforms that follow James Garfield's assassination, where there are more start to be more employees insulated from political control. So there are some developments going on there. So Woodrow Wilson is is he's born in 1856. He grows up in the Confederacy and in in Reconstruction. Uh, he lives you know in the South until he's 30, uh, other than attending Princeton. Um, you know he he he's uh, sufficiently. I mean, his father sides with the Confederacy. He, you know, he sees in person Jefferson Davis and Robert E. Lee when he's when he's a young uh, child. Um, and so Wilson is very much a creature of the South, and and as we'll see, his um, you know a lot of his attitudes about race certainly, uh, and not only about race, but also his mistrust of Congress. I think a lot of that is not only of a piece with the uh, antebellum, the postbellum South, the Reconstruction era South, but is specifically influenced by his dislike of Reconstruction, right? And Reconstruction mm-hmm. is very much driven in the period, you know, after Lincoln's assassination, Reconstruction is, is driven by Congress. Uh, and it is the fights between Congress and the executive branch, um, are very much ones in which, uh, the interests of the South, um, are against what Congress is doing, right? Congress, Congress is is imposing Reconstruction on the South in ways that are not uh, that are not popular. And so, Wilson in the 1870s and 1880s, as he as he develops into a scholar, is writing these articles, uh, essentially blasting congressional government and how how terrible it is to have the government run by congressional committees that they're too responsive to popular opinion. Um, and, and, and this is very much you know tied to i think i mean it's 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 his own theoretical work, but it's impossible to miss the influence there of Wilson's dislike of congressional reconstruction um, and he also you know he writes in some of his in some of his academic work and his his treatises um, you know he writes about even the idea not only that that executive administration and his landmark Uh, essay in 1887 on the administrative state, Um, not only about, um, you know, congressional government being too responsive to popular opinion, but that popular opinion is too difficult to manage because of the uh, essentially racial and ethnic diversity of the United States. Um, So a lot of this, it, 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 it seeps into his attitudes in a lot of different ways. You know, he writes he is a student of the Confederate um, Constitution. He has, you know, he has like an entire, in one of his history books, he has a whole side-by-side comparison of the U.S. Constitution. Uh, and he speaks approvingly of, of some of the innovations that are made specifically on the separation of powers from. So this is, is, I think, pervasive a pervasive influence on Wilson. It's not the only influence. Uh, you know, he's also a great admirer of the Prussian system. and And, you know, we have... Um, at this point in time, there's there's more growth of administrative unelected government in Europe certainly than there is in the United States. Well, um,
0: yeah, and I guess on that point, uh, l- let me play devil's advocate on a couple issues. I mean, first, where does this leave the previous forty years of history before Wilson, when the administrative state was developing? I mean, we've got fifty years of civil service reform and U.S. government growth really under Republicans. You could point out and. Um, maybe some would argue then that the administrative would have expanded even more under uh, Theodore Roosevelt than Wilson at that period of time, just given the trajectory of it going. I mean, would you, how would you respond to, the, to those arguments? And I know I, I saw many critics lob those re- arguments in response to your column too.
1: Yeah, and, and, and look, I mean, I'm not, I'm not trying to argue that this is
0: the sole and only uh, origin uh,
1: story of the administrative state, but I think it's a hugely important part of it because there is this prior experience and it is something that Wilson grows up around that Wilson studies in his work. Um, and so I think it is very, it is very large influence on Wilson. Um, I, I honestly think, uh, I, I think, we, I mean, the hard part with Teddy Roosevelt, um, frankly, is that you have the Teddy Roosevelt, um, who's a Republican president and then you have the Teddy Roosevelt of 1912. Right. And, and Roosevelt has shifted a lot uh in the years that he's been out of the white house he's much more radical um and so you know to say well if say if roosevelt stayed another four years in office or something is one thing to say if roosevelt gets reelected if roosevelt gets elected in 1912 that may be a very different story Um, the other thing though on the other hand you know roosevelt i mean roosevelt was much more of a um presidential power guy mm-hmm. i think more so than a an administrative state guy you know he was not at least at least i mean he i think he certainly was a guy who was growing some of the administrative powers of the government but he was not a devoted theorist of you know unelected bureaucracy um roosevelt believed much more in presidential control but, uh, than Stilton, Wilson, obviously
0: yeah yeah and you make the case, too. I think you freely admit that, look, there's a lot of other governments in the free world, Europe in particular, that ended up growing an administrative state without a confederacy. So in some ways, maybe it was inevitable with or without the confederacy, but, um, but that nonetheless the confederate uh, approach to the administrative state was still um, a big influence on Woodrow Wilson and that because of that, he certainly helped um, – advance its cause and maybe even speed it up is that a fair way to characterize it
1: yeah although although i the caveat i would offer there when, when we talk about the free world is to remember that you know the free world in in 1912 was still you know the united states britain uh and only a handful you know it was it was most i mean you did have uh, france was france was republic by that point but uh you know huge amounts of continental europe I think, and and you know, you could you could argue this certainly with France, with the Napoleonic system. Even huge amounts of Europe developed um, administrative state structures uh, well before they had popularly elected governments. So in those situations, the development of an administrative state uh, is actually prior to the development of, say, a written constitution. I mean, the right. British, the British in the in the era of you know, Lincoln and, and, and Jefferson Davis, the British had, um, actually a very small government. Um, shockingly so in fact, for, uh, how large an empire they were governing around the world.
0: Right. Right. Well, you know, an important takeaway for me, uh, from your piece, um, I, I, I don't think you're trying to make sort of what one might call the genetic fallacy or guilt by association and say, look, uh, because the Confederates embraced this bureaucratic state and Wilson embraced it, that therefore makes him um, guilty by association for that reason. Um, But um, I do think that the Confederacy, as you point out, was a central government that incurred massive debt um, while imposing massive taxes. It had a virtual monopoly on foreign trade. It maintained de facto control over raw materials and labor and transportation. Um, Jefferson Davis often invoked martial law in parts of the Confederacy, allowing military commanders to make, uh, I think you point this out, arbitrary arrests, controlled travel, fixed prices, all that. And so, um, but let's, I mean, war was a, an obvious factor in that sort of hypocrisy, you could say, where they're, they're, they're claiming to be small government and they're not. War was an important factor that do you think the Confederate bureaucratic system would have continued, let's say, had the, hypothetically and theoretically, they'd won the war, um, you know, 1870, 1880. Would they have, you think, reverted back to some sort of small government, state-centered type of approach? Or do you think that bureaucracy was there to stay um, regardless?
1: Yeah, I mean, there's two separate questions, obviously, which is one, what, what does the Confederacy look like if the Union lets it go peacefully and you don't have this development of a wartime right. state? Uh, and the other is what happens if they, they win, they survive? Um, and I think in the latter case, certainly, um, I mean, Richard Franklin Bensel, whose, whose book Yankee Leviathan I, is one of the major sources that I was, um, you know, drawing on. And he, he certainly argues that, um, you know, that, that the, the threads of administrative control had wormed themselves so deeply into Southern society during the war that it would have been hard to tear it all up by the roots, and it was making some fundamental changes. Uh, on the other hand, you have to remember too that the, you know, the the southern states before the war, um, you know, had some small government principles on which they opposed the rest of the country in terms of tariffs, in terms of internal improvements. Um, but at the same time, you know, the the state structure of Uh, protecting slavery also involved an awful lot of state control and and state control of, you know, state control of the mail, state control of travel, uh, state control of the press in ways that were out of step with the North. So I think the, the principles, you know, there were, there were certainly principles and there were principal people in the Confederate government for their own uh, species of principle. I mean, somebody like Alexander Stevens, you know, um, is in some ways kind of the 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 ideal of the principled politician, if you set aside the actual substance of his principles. Um, but you know, instead, which is why Stevens, even though he's one of the architects of this Constitution, ends up as a uh, you know a fairly staunch critic of the administration in which he was serving as vice president. Um, so, but yeah, I think I think the I think had they survived the war, they would have come out of it a more administrative structure than the Union just because of um, what the experience had been uh, and probably because what what they would have needed going forward for so the Confederate States of America to remain an independent-going concern, they were going to continue to need state control to protect slavery. They were probably going to need, um, for a significant period of time, uh, you know, a, a stronger military. They didn't have the natural uh, you know, defenses of the oceans and whatnot that the United States had. And, and, you know, and I think there was there was probably a fair amount of predatory interest at that point on the part of Britain and France and whatnot to go after, uh, perhaps go after Confederate interests.
0: All right. Well, this is the Lincoln Log podcast. And so uh, we focus on Abraham Lincoln. Our listeners are uh, interested in him. So just want to shift a little bit to get your thoughts on some some of the Aspects of him relating to war, um, he's often criticized for suspending habeas corpus, um, which many and consider an unconstitutional act. Uh, where, how do you view his actions as it relates to the suspension of habeas corpus and whether it was, you know, a constitutional or not?
1: Yeah, I mean, I I think there is, I mean, obviously, there is a contrast there to Jefferson Davis because you know both of them fairly extensively use those kind of wartime powers. Uh, and and you know I think Davis, as you noted, did use like sort of the creation of martial law more extensively than Lincoln it, for for you know rational reasons because the the uh, the territory he was governing was was much more uh, under invasion. At the same time, um, you know Davis, unlike Lincoln, did not uh, suspend the writ until he had a congressional approval to do so. Um, so. You know, I mean, I think that's a debate that it's kind of a never-ending debate, but I think that the fact that both of them were taking similar steps at the same time uh, is an illustration of the the wartime necessity to do this, that that the the circumstances of a civil war um, are naturally going to lead to some loss of civil liberties, uh, even some civil liberties that would be more easily protected during a foreign war. Uh, just because, you know, the front is all over the place and, uh, you know, there was, there was Confederate espionage and, and, and sabotage and people trying to, um, you know, take ships and, and, uh, go off on these various kind of privateering expeditions. I mean, there were people arrested in California for, for plots to try to secede. And, um, so there was, you know, and the raids coming in through the Canadian border, um, so it's, it's a fairly extensive challenge that Lincoln is, that Lincoln is dealing with.
0: Well, Professor Alan Gelza, who's actually been on this podcast before, notes that uh, the suspension is not spelled out clearly in the Constitution who can do that. And so one could argue that the president has that prerogative, not Congress. Now, the fact that it is in um, Article 1, I think, is a strong suggestion that that was with Congress. But then... Um, Congress was in in recess, not in session, and that wasn't going to happen for a while. And so, to the extent you felt like it was necessary during a, you know, an insurrection or war, um, I think that was probably uh, Lincoln's justification, or what would, would be Lincoln's ultimate legal justification for doing it without Congress.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely, and he did, you know, he did go to Congress once he once he had Congress back in session that to expression. go to. Right. Uh, I mean, Lincoln. One of the interesting things about Lincoln, I think, looking back, is that. I don't think there's ever been an American administration that was more thoroughly staffed with lawyers than the Lincoln administration. You look at the cabinet, um, you know, I mean, you look at, I mean, he's got, uh, people like Seward and Stanton. Um, and, you know, I mean, I think like half of it, more than half of his cabinet was lawyers. Uh, Lincoln's a lawyer. It's, I think Hamlin was a lawyer. Uh, Andrew Johnson was a lawyer. Um, so there's the you know there's there's lawyers all over this administration, and they they do have uh you know they think these things through. They're not they're not sort of doing right. this on the fly.
0: One of the things that I think tends to unite intellectuals on both the left and the right occasionally is this belief that Lincoln was, in some important ways, a father of modern liberalism. Um, I don't know that I fully agree with that. Um, I wouldn't really place him as either. Conservative or liberal, quite that easily, but rather as an acolyte of the Declaration of Independence, who one who saw really the Civil War, um, uh, maybe not as an opportunity, but certainly that it, during that time that it was with the uh, uh, freeing of the slaves, the full flowering of the Declaration's true promise. I'm curious how you view Lincoln. Whether you see him sort of in that conservative-liberal box, one way or the other, um, and do you do would you agree he's the father of modern liberalism? If not, why not? Well, I think
1: that, that, that you know, I think you can place where Lincoln is
0: um, and
1: then argue over where other people are in relation to him. I think Lincoln is absolutely and unquestionably a classical liberal uh, within, you know, it, it, within the political map of the 1850s and 1860s. He's easy. to He's actually pretty easy to isolate or to locate. Uh, and he is you know one of the most um i think one of the most consistent uh, classical liberals of his age even compared you know when you compare him to uh the british politicians of his time to you know seward or grant uh to even you know somebody like benito juarez uh who is kind of the the chief to the classical liberal on the north american continent outside of the us um and so Uh, And and at the same time, Lincoln, you know, Lincoln was not afraid to embrace uh, at times the label of conservative or at least to argue that his policies and his views were conservative in some ways. At the Cooper Union speech, he does this very effectively talking about the, you know, the tried and familiar. And I don't think Lincoln saw himself as a conservative, but he saw some of the things he was doing as justifiable uh, and, and important within a conservative world. You obviously in you know in that time period conservative uh was sort of very much a small c word that you would, would get used sometimes for for those you know kind of Burkean concepts but conservative in the 1850s and 1860s tended much more to be a term that was used to mean you know the real throne and altar conservatism of europe um you know i, I mean my argument long term is that um, is that the Republican Party of his era, and I think this is, you know, has been true for much of the party's history, and, and, you know, uh, it's much more controversial maybe to argue at this present moment, but, um, for much of the party's history, there has always been this kind of fusionist, uh, strain running through the party between the classical liberal, uh, sort of ideals that are general in their application, um, and, you know some of the less immediately ideological conservative strains that have run through the party and in Lincoln's time that's you know you have the um you know there's a strain of of nationalism uh in foreign policy which Seward is very much a you know Seward is a nationalist mm-hmm. um he's i mean he has some classical liberal ideas as well but his his foreign policy ideas are very expansionist um uh it, you know and he's, he's he's more or less i mean he kind of crosses swords constantly with palmerston in england because the, in a sense the two of them have almost too much in common yes. um and you know grant i think is 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 in some ways more of a nationalist and more of a, a christian moralist actually now, we don't think of grant in those terms but uh he's very much a a you know a victorian era methodist um and so you have those strains and you have that even in, I mean, even in Lincoln, you know, uh, the incorporation of the know-nothings who are very much a, a kind of America first sort of faction within the party and Lincoln brings them in. He doesn't think much of them, but he, uh, he tolerates them. And you have the, you know, the, the protective tariffs, which is not really what you'd call it, be, um, a classical liberal uh, thing. And so, you know, I think that, that Lincoln is, his sympathies are are deeply classical liberal Uh, and whether you consider today's liberals or conservatives to be heirs of Lincoln, I think depends very much on how much you think that, that they are or are not uh, classically liberal that, you know, you can look at Republicans today and Donald Trump and, you know, and, and sort of see some of his points of departure from classical liberalism. Obviously anything that any sort of modern progressivism is hard to square with uh, the classical liberals of the 19th century, but but in his own time, Lincoln is is not hard to isolate as not only the kind of almost uh, ideal classical liberal, but more classically liberal even than a lot of his own party.
0: Right. Lincoln's considered, as we all know, one of the best, if not the best, American presidents. I'm curious what you think accounts for his greatness. Did was it did the Civil War? amplify those attributes or would we still have considered him a great president if the civil war had not occurred i mean there's always has to be a, a marriage of the man in the moment uh and and you know
1: to be a president a great president um to be one of the true great presidents usually requires you to surmount great challenges um and and certainly i would put lincoln you know i mean it's sort of one one and two between lincoln and washington is a uh, uh, an endless debate because they had different kinds of challenges. Washington had to kind of create the presidency uh, after it was more or less written around him. Um, but uh, there's no question that that's your top two, however you order them. I mean, I think Lincoln, and Lincoln had to learn on the job. He was actually remarkably inexperienced in some ways, but he had he had a diversity of experiences. Right. Um, and I think it's the it, it was more a matter of character. Um, and, and the fact that he had, you know, he had thought through what he believed in. Um, and, um, uh, I mean, the other, the other thing that I think is, is important to remember about Lincoln, um, and, and, and you, you, appreciate this more when you compare him to the other world leaders of his day, too. Um, Lincoln was remarkably forward-looking and sophisticated about technology. If you look at, I mean, newspapers are another major development. Uh, you know, that they grow explosively in the decades uh, that parallel Lincoln's rise to prominence. And, you know, there's there, if you look at Lincoln's communications, I mean, he's he's tremendous in these long-form debates and long-form speeches. But, you know, as he goes to become the president, as he gets more in the habit of communicating through the telegraph, his, his messages, his speeches, his letters um, become much more concise. Uh, and again, that's partly the press of business. But I think, you know, the, the, the miracle of things like the second inaugural and the Gettysburg Address, which are these, these magisterial um, speeches, which are like, you know, a couple of paragraphs. Uh, I, I mean, I, you, can, you can put out the entire Gettysburg Address in like six tweets, right? So, um, and I, th- I think the discipline of working with the telegraph actually made Lincoln more concise in the way that he communicated. Um, And so so I think you have all of these different uh, all of these different thing strands of his career in which you can see his sophistication about technology uh, and his his willingness to, um, you know, to rethink what can what what is possible, what can be done.
0: Right. Right. Well, we we often like to end these podcasts by asking guests this question. So I'm going to ask it for you. What is uh, a favorite uh, Lincoln story or anecdote that you might have?
1: Um, I mean, I, you know, I think, I I, I think to me, the, the thing that I keep going back to a lot, and, and, and this is part of being a conservative writer in this particular time is just Lincoln's, um, you know, Lincoln as the leader of a coalition, Lincoln as a guy who understands how to build a brand new party. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and so it's, it's the entire scope of all of his efforts to uh, bring together these kind of fractious groups, you know, the former Whigs, you've got the Know-Nothings, um, and um, I mean, some of my favorite Lincoln stuff to read, of course, is his, his attacks on the uh, uh, the Dred Scott decision, uh, which are very lawyerly, uh, but also very inspiring in in how he, um, you know, how he invokes the, the framers. Um, but... So I I think that's the period that that is in some ways the most interesting to me and the the theme that is some ways the most interesting to me is Lincoln from you know 1857 to 1861 like putting together that coalition uh and managing it in a way that uh that gets everybody on board uh with and builds you know for the first time this majority party in in the north
0: right right well, Dan, I appreciate you coming on and chatting about uh, your column and some of your uh, views and thoughts and in- insights into uh, um, the Civil War and Abraham Lincoln. Um, please keep up the uh, um, the good work. Whether you're a liberal or conservative, I think you uh, prompt people to to think and uh, certainly spark good dialogue. Um, and if you're interested in beyond uh, uh, politics, obviously we mentioned at the at the outset, but you are a baseball guy. Not to be confused with the. Uh, Famous St. Louis uh, announcer, I assume, of the same name, right? <laughs> yeah, no, no relation, but I do,
1: uh, I do get people looking for him and uh, finding me instead are, on Twitter a good Are pace. you
0: a Cardinals fan, or who, who's your team of choice? N- no, I am, I am a
1: lifelong, long-suffering Mets
0: fan. Oh, okay, all right, all right, great, all right. Well, again, I appreciate it, and uh, we'll talk soon. All right, thanks for having me. Uh-huh. Thank you for listening to Lincoln Log. You can subscribe to the podcast in iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. And if you like this podcast, please consider rating it on iTunes and leaving a review. This helps other people find the show.